This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This Intelligence Squared podcast, in partnership with Shell, was recorded at the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park at the Make the Future Live Festival. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this particular late in the Make the Future Late. Um, we are discussing this evening, we're going to be debating the smart city, and we are asking ourselves, the smart city, urban wonderland, or fool's paradise? Well... We're kind of only giving you two options there. I, I'm sure we'll hear many, many other options uh, uh, as, as the debate uh, proceeds. I suppose I'm, I'm speaking as a card-carrying fool. Uh, I think they both sound pretty good. Um, but how about dehumanising dystopia? It could be that. I don't know. We've got lots of things to explore. We have here from Ways, Finlay Clark, uh, UK country manager of Ways, the crowdsourced traffic and navigation app. He collaborates with transport authorities, broadcasters and advertisers, showcasing how Waze can help cities, how it can harness the data to help cities run more efficiently. We've spoken a little bit about that. We also have Dr Stephen Lorimer here, Smart London Strategy and Delivery Officer at the Greater London Authority. Smart, that's uh, part of your nomenclature, I think, rather rather than a judgment on how debonair you are, although I I would say you you were pretty damn debonair. Um, He's responsible for the Mayor of London's plans and programmes in smart city technologies and innovation in digital public services. He recently transferred to Smarter London Together. This is his plan to transform London into the smartest city in the world. And again, that's smart in a technological context, of course. Um, to my left here is Angela Huja, an award-winning science writer for the Financial Times, Prospect and the BBC. She holds a PhD in space physics and she's the co-author of Selected, which is a book about the history and science of leadership. But despite her science background or even perhaps because of her science background, uh, she remains quite sceptical and has some serious answers, uh, some serious questions, I should say, to put to us about the benefits of smart city technology. And sitting to Angie's left is Jamie Bartlett, one of the UK's leading thinkers on the politics and social influence of the internet. Jamie is a director of the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media, uh, a collaboration between Demos and the University of Sussex. I'm glad I read that right. The moment it looked like demons and the University of Sussex, but no, it is, it is the think tank, I think. His latest book is The People Versus Tech, How the Internet is Killing Democracy and How We Save It. So to get the ball rolling, um, I am just going to ask each of you briefly what it is about the city as a concept that excites you. And Finley, I'm going to ask you first, what is it about the city that gets you going? 
Good evening, everyone. Uh, I've been a Londoner exactly eight years this weekend. I moved down from Scotland. Uh, and the thing that I think interests me most about cities, now clearly there's lots more people going to be moving to cities in the next few decades. And cities are pretty old things, right? There's a reason for that. London was built hundreds of years ago. So it's actually quite difficult to change quite aging infrastructure easily. So we're in this interesting time when software and technology companies are moving at very fast speed, but cities, obviously, because of regulation and all the rest of it about aging infrastructure, can't move so fast. So what I hope to share a little bit today, tonight is about how we work with cities because there's so much innovation that's going to happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years. I think it's a good time to live in cities, um, but I look forward to hearing what you guys think as well. Thank you. Thanks very much. And I'm going to come to you next. Um, what interests you about cities? Right. I was, um, I was brought up in the suburbs. Well, I was an Essex girl, um, and I've lived in London for... Well, I want, wanted to get here to get to university, and I've never left. So I've been in London for about 30 years. I've had my children here... Um, uh, they've been educated here. I've moved around London as a student, as a kind of a, a kind of a young, aspiring person, and now I'm settled. Um, and I look at what we think of as a smart city. I already think London is pretty smart, um, and it. I, I love its sense of natural evolution, um, and I slightly worry that the push towards smart cities. Um, is, is, is a cover for, for something that um, is, will essentially change the character of London. And I, I think there's a little bit of Emperor's New Clothes about it, partly because it's really hard to find someone who can define what a smart city is. Thank you very much. Stephen, i come to you next. Hi, everyone. Um, I suppose you're hearing an American voice representing the mayor of London, so maybe I should explain a little bit of that. Um, I got very involved with cities because I found out I was born in New York, but I grew up in a very small place out in, the, uh, out in Virginia in, in, in America. And a, a lot like, like Anne just said right now, I spent a long time thinking about how I could get back to that city. And when, and, and when I did... I suddenly found that people were interacting with each other. I found that I could walk down the middle of the street and there wasn't a driver that wanted to teach me a lesson and wanted to run me off the road. And I've, 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 I've always found that as a totally fascinating way of something that was almost opposed to the way I, I grew up when you were almost locked in a vehicle and being chauffeured one place to another and totally dependent on your parents or other people to get yourself around. And that freedom that you give to being, uh, being in a city. So eventually I be became a trained town planner, became somebody who went and designed those cities. And I came to Europe to do it because I didn't want to design another strip mall in America. And that is a new, a, a new piece of suburbia in cities. And, and so I went and designed places I'm really, really proud of in, in, around the UK and Europe. And now I'm working for the mayor of London. Thank you very much. And Jamie, finally you. Well, I suppose like you, Andrew, I mean, I come from a, uh, one of these rubbish suburb... I'm not saying your town's rubbish, but <laughs> one of these rubbish suburban towns that sucks. Uh, all the life is taken from, from it, and everyone jumps to London because it's so exciting. And it sucked me in too for exactly that reason. I mean, it's where people are, it's where different ideas uh, germinate, and it's exciting. But I do worry about how cities 
um, are leaving the rest behind and the sort of in, in, intense focus on cities at the expense culturally, economically, politically of everywhere else. And this is important, I think, because the future, I don't believe, belongs to the nation-state. It probably belongs to the city-state, the small, agile ways of living. And if that's true, and I think it is, then it's even more worrying that cities can take off and leave the rest of us behind. And so we want to make sure that the benefits of the cities are spread around the country too. Um, Finlay, let's just go back to Waze. Um, what is Waze going to do to make London a, a smart city? So at Waze, we've been busy building a real-time navigation and traffic app that's all crowdsourced. So taking those millions of GPS traces of drivers and turning that in a way to save you time, give you smarter commutes. Broadly, we see all the nonsense on the roads and try and route you around it so you're not stuck in it. Um, so we have a, about 100 million people every month that use ways to commute around the world. Um, in addition to that, we work with 600 or so departments of transportation through a program called Connected Citizens. And this is a genuine example of a free public-private partnership where everyone benefits. So city like London, TfL, they're getting anonymous data from Waze, direct access to our back end to find out where are the slowdowns, where are the accidents in London. And they're actually using that to help respond and recover to things quicker. Because believe it or not, people, res people report accidents in Waze quicker than they phone 999. So we have our connected citizens. We also have about 500,000 volunteer map editors who are actually people on the ground who update ways as a hobby. So just so you're clear about this, the top guys in London do four to five hours of editing a day. So they're updating things like this is a new one-way street. This is where um, a new roundabout's gone in. And these people, they love... They love it. They love being the champions for their area, but they play a much broader role. I mean, we've been unfortunate enough in this city to have terrorist attacks, and when we had things like London Bridge last June, our top editors saw the news, they logged on to the Waze editor, and they started shutting the roads in real time so Waze wasn't taking any drivers near those areas. Our mission is to end traffic or play a role in alleviating traffic. And if we're really serious about that, then we actually have to stop finding you shortcuts and find ways to actually take cars off the road. So we've got this funny problem that there's basically too many cars, not enough roads. And what we've been trialing for the last couple of years in Israel, and we're now rolling out across in America, is Waze Carpool. So this is the idea. Can we apply the Airbnb model of kind of to empty car seats? So it's not a competitor to... Uber or Lyft or these companies, we're actually asking Wazers who are driving predominantly to home and work whether they will actually get a Lyft and car share with someone else. Now, carpooling's been around since the end of the Second World War, so it's not a new concept, far from it, but it's quite a lot of hassle for not much reward. So we're trying to remove all the hassle, the pricing, the density, the matching of people. And we're seeing some interesting things. In America, where there's carpool lanes, you can have substantially shorter commutes with more people in the car. And we're finding that these people like to do it because it saves them time, it saves them money. And we expect to be an option for people to commute. So we're doing a lot of things in the background focused on our mission of ending traffic. And we're quite optimistic about where traffic and transport's going. 
It is an industry that is going to be disrupted. I think it will be good for consumers. People who live in urban areas are going to have many, many more options to get people and things around urban areas. It will be a lot cheaper than it is today. And we're optimistic that many, many services and companies are going to come out of here that will add to that ecosystem. So look forward to exploring some of these topics tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. And I'm going to turn to you. Um, you, I know, have reservations about the social aspect of the smart city, don't exactly. you? Exactly. I just want to go back to what you said, Alexander, which was that I do feel a particular duty, I suppose, to speak out on these kind of issues because of my tech background. I think a lot of people are quite nervous about speaking out um, and, and because they don't feel there's something about tech that's, uh, that people think is, is exclusive. You need to have a tech background to comment on it. Um, you know, you can't, you can just be a consumer and comment it, but people are quite reluctant to, to kind of really get on board with um, the implications of tech for society. And, and I think I've identified what I call the five P's, um, which for me are particular issues with smart cities. Uh, one is privacy, because when people know where you are, know what you're doing, who you're communicating with, then what happens to our idea of privacy, particularly in the city, where you know lots of people love the idea that they're, that they're known to their neighbours, but actually relish the anonymity of walking around Westfield um, and, and people not knowing who you are. You can be anyone you want to be. The other one is power. Um, and I don't mean in the shell sense of power, I mean actually kind of power who who runs things so um we when you think about smart cities you think about data and you use data to generate knowledge and as we know knowledge is power but power for whom in the smart city when you think about the centralized kind of control and command structures that you need in order to roll out uh things then who are taking the decisions right at the top and deciding how how cities are run um my third one is participation. Who's participating? So one of the interesting things is it, it, that, that I think is, is when people talk about smart cities and the planning of them, is how little you hear the citizen's voice. So when you look at something like the Smart London Board, which, I, which may have changed, I, I don't know, but last time I looked, it had plenty of academics on, plenty of reps, you know, plenty of CEOs from tech companies. Um, I couldn't see anyone there from civic movements. From you know, where is the citizen's voice in this? Um, uh, you know, what, they're, they're just invisible. Um, so who are we doing it for? Who's participating? The other one is partitioning. Um, I, by that, I really mean segmentation. So we all know that our consumer use of our phones. Um, you know, we're sliced and diced as consumers into particular kind of consumer categories. Um, and I worry a little bit about that happening to us as citizens because the more data that is aggregated about us, the more we can be partitioned off. And, 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 and that, all that does is entrench um, kind of inequalities that already exist. So if you look at, for example, smartphone ownership, only I kind of, it's about a fifth, I think, of over 75s have smartphones. And that's how most of us probably would, would access a lot of digital services. And you think about the ageing population. I mean, a lot of um, over 75-year-olds will come on board eventually, but actually that's, that leaves an awful lot that are excluded from, from all these digital innovations, whether they're at the consumer level or at the city level. Um, and the last one is purpose. What is the purpose of a smart city? 
Um, as I said, that I find it really hard to find a, def- a really good definition of a smart city. And, uh, and you can ask 10 people and you get 10 different definitions. We kind of know it's about real-time change. It's about being more energy efficient. It's about work, you know, things might running more smoothly. But it's more smoothly for whom? Uh, who, who is going to benefit? And I think those are the kind of uh, um, issues that I don't see addressed enough in the dialogues that we have and I'm really happy to be here as a skeptic um, kind of airing airing that with with uh, with you and, and with my panelists. Thank you very much indeed and now Stephen you're head of smart cities at the GLA. Yes. Um, can we first talk about what London has achieved in terms of its efficiencies? Well, what we achieve so far is, is a lot, but to be able to accomplish the goals that we have, for instance, to be able to have a 40% reduction in greenhouse gases and, and fossil fuels in London by 2022 on, based on 1990 levels, and to actually increase the solar capacity of London by one gigawatt. To put in perspective, the UK uses about 50 at the same time by 2030 and have two by 2050. There's a lot of smart technologies that need to go in to be able to accomplish those goals. And what we say within the smart city, though, is that it's something that is built around Londoners and their needs. Because we see a smart city not as something which is a big system integration, which you've often talked about that in the past, but one that which is collaborative, that sees all the data that's being held by a wide variety of sources. It isn't centralized in one, one giant database, something which is connected, that actually connects all the different people of London together around those goals. And that's something that is responsive, that is responsive by bringing technology and data to bear on Londoners' needs. We have, have goals that we have in skills, be able to get skills in the hands of all Londoners, be able to participate in these technologies and the technology industry, and to be able to meet the target that we have by 2041 to get 80% of all trips in London done on by public transport, walking or cycling, and get in, uh, all the people driving. And this includes all the people that are taking taxis and private hire vehicles down to 20%. And the, and the reason why and we tried to bring that together in, in Smarter London together, which was the mayor's roadmap that, uh, that to be able to make London the smartest city in the world. And we, we actually launched that by reaching out to Londoners and giving them a little bit of data that we collect already through TFL and ask them, tell us about what tube station you go into, what tube station you go out of. And it was called Your Commute. And it told you how many people did the exact same journey all the time. And did anyone actually use that here? We had about 100,000 Londoners that used that tool to be able to see how many people actually did the exact same journey they had before. Anyone? Yes. (laughs) I would expect you to do it, Finley. You don't count. Yes, we have a a couple of people in the audience. Great. Uh, Out of the almost 9 million people in London, 100,000, that's a pretty good return to having a, a few people to be able to do that. But the scale that we have in London with... 33 boroughs, 60 NHS trusts, lots of different organizations that can employ smart cities technologies. It's a real testbed for new ideas. So there's some examples of what we've done already right here in the Olympic Park. We've been testing out a connected environment for autonomous vehicles and spending about 13 million on, on, on that because without the 5G connectivity of the next, next version of mobile connectivity, we're not going to be able to actually have those function, uh, function well in the future, and that's being the, f- the future of electric vehicles within, within London. But we also need to have a real think about what is the data we're being collect- uh, that's being collected, 
how do we share that effectively, but with but with preserving the privacy and security of the people that are that are there? So, so a couple of examples of that. Uh, we're thinking about the algorithms that are controlling, for example, the the traffic light system in London. It's controlled by one huge algorithm of how many people are being put through the traffic lights in London. Some of the data is coming from ways. Some of the data is coming from buses that we want to give priority to go to go through the system. And we want to think about what is the balance between those who are generating the data and those who are exploiting it. And this is a concept called a data trust. Some people call it a personal data store. Nobody knows exactly how that works, what that right balance is, whether it's a transaction where you get a micropayment, whether it's a community benefit that you're getting on behalf of the people who are exploiting that data. But we're committed to uh, doing that within the plan as well. Because we need, and we won't be able to accomplish that, as, as Anne's rightly said, without the connectivity to make that happen. Um, we d have had a commitment to have new homes in London having access to the full fiber ne uh, network within our, our planning powers. We have said that we want to be having public Wi-Fi available through, uh, throughout London and having a, having a standard to be able to, to do that. But we also need to be able to get the data from the infrastructure that we build. So the next generation of designers and engineers have the ability to design more fuel-efficient buildings, spaces that work for everyone. Okay, Stephen, I'm just going to bring in Jamie at this point. Um, Jamie, smart city technology, I know you have reservations about it. Well, like, uh, like a lot of people here, I use things like Waze. And I couldn't get anywhere now without one of these apps. Uh, but that's a problem, because if you took it away from me, I'd be completely lost. And that's the way that technology goes. We become very quickly reliant and become very quickly attuned to these new technologies such that we begin to lose something else and that is one of the things that I'm worried about I think you can draw quite a neat comparison here between going from phones to smartphones and all the associated costs and benefits that that has brought we will see with smart cities going from cities to smart cities if we're talking about smart cities meaning essentially embedding millions possibly around the world trillions I sound like Dr. Evil here, trillions of sensors to collect data to understand patterns of behaviour to drive up efficiency and energy savings, which we will, and make traffic better and energy use more efficient, which we will. There are going to be very, very significant associated costs with that that I don't think we're thinking about enough, which is weird because over the last few months, we've all started getting very nervous about what big companies are collecting about us. What data is suddenly out there? Who has it? What are they doing with it? And yet, simultaneously, we want to embed millions of more devices with data tracking all of our different behaviour. Who is, aside from London, one of the leading smart cities? Singapore. And look at the level of control that a country like Singapore is able to, or a city-state like Singapore is able to exercise. Is it a surprise that China is investing huge amounts in smart city technology? No. And I'm sure these places will run very effectively and efficiently. But we are also in danger of building a, an incredibly powerful surveillance system. And it will start off, of course, with we're just monitoring your bins to make sure that, you know, we're going to maximise the way in which bins are being used. And then five years later, the local authority will be arresting people uh, because they haven't put the right bottles in the right recycling bins. That's how it will go. 
You know it will go that way because that's the tendency of governments to use these technologies to solve problems, but often at expenses of other liberties that we have. And I think I'm afraid it's going to be the same with ownership of these technologies. Who actually owns them? I don't think these problems are insurmountable. I don't think we can't figure out a way of having all the benefits that they will bring, uh, but we have to bear in mind the risks. And the final risks, I would say, is another thing that we have been talking about rather a lot in the last few months, is sort of inscrutable algorithms, unaccountable algorithms, algorithms that calculate, work out patterns of behaviour and drive change that nobody can actually understand apart from the people that run them and own them. How do you hold these things accountable? How do you make sure they're actually working in public interest? These are things that we can deal with, but it's very important that when we're building this technology, we're building all of those protections in. So, Finlay, do you, I mean, you recognise what Jamie's saying there, or do you think he's, do you think he's being a bit...? No, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we don't sell data ways. I've got many insurance companies that ask us or tell us we'd like to know how fast people go so that we can charge yet. them higher premiums, and that's not how we make money and pay for the innovation. Can I just say something quick about this, uh, about Waze. I'm not having to go at Waze at all. But Google's original business model was also not to sell advertising. It, it, and it did, like you said, it, it changed. It had to find a way of making money, of monetizing data. It was never really the original plan. And in the end, it did. And yes, Google and Facebook and others have a lot of competitors. They're all rubbish. And no one uses them because they're not as good. Because digital services tend towards concentrations and monopolies. And I think that is what will happen with smart city technology as well. And that really worries me. The other thing I want to pick up about is monetizing data. Because everyone talks about monetization of data. And in terms of council, I can see, actually, and you don't have to be particularly dystopian in, in view to see it, where if you are a good council resident you get lower council taxes, for example. So you will willingly kind of put your bins out. You will not park in, the, in, in, in a disabled space when you haven't got a disabled badge, etc. You will be a good citizen. And you know who's already doing that is China. So they're now rolling out what's called a social credit score. So according to your behaviour, and they can do this because the machinery to do it is there with Alibaba, with the payment system. So they look at what you buy, they look at how you behave, they, uh, the Chinese government aggregates data and gives you a social credit rating. If you're low on that, you can't travel on the trains, you can't book certain hotels, you can't leave certain regions. Dating and, apps as well. Sorry? Dating, you, you so you can't, yes, you can, you can uh, oh, that's right, you, you, you get, you can, it, it can influence where you, uh, where you appear on dating sites, for example. It is incredible. It's, beyond, you know, and that is a kind of dystopian vision, but, but you, we, when you're talking about monetization of data, that, I think, is a, something to think about. I'm just going to move things on and bring up something that we haven't yet talked about, which is, I mean, you hinted at it, how our reliability on, on technology means that we are suddenly very vulnerable to cyber attack. 
And uh, I was listening to someone the other day in the security services saying that actually the idea, the thing we all dread of a city being turned to rubble, this could well be an outmoded worst-case scenario because actually you don't need to reduce cities to rubble. You can reduce social cohesion to rubble. We are five meals away from anarchy, this person was saying. <laughs> you know, you bring the just-in-time economy to its knees, you know, where suddenly the, the supermarket shelves are empty and you didn't, need to, you didn't need to fire a single round. You brought a whole city to its knees. And does that, does that worry you? And do, do you take steps to anticipate that? Well, we are taking steps all the, all the time to anticipate that. We, we are in currently designing a new cybersecurity strategy for, uh, for London. Actually, London's quite protected in a way because its public services are so federated. They are so mm-hmm. spread out amongst all the different boroughs and NHS trusts and service providers. But we need to make sure that there's standard ways of working is one way that we're trying to get them to collaborate together. But it doesn't mean that they have to have the same provider that if one cyber attack strategy comes down, then everything goes down with, with, within London, for, ex- for example. We need a variety of different providers that are involved. That, that's why we're encouraging a number of different, different SMEs to be, uh, to be suppliers and opening up the procurement uh, contracts of London. For example, having an uh, open data center for, uh, for contracting and procurement so, we can actually, so people can know what we want to buy because it's often, a clo- uh, often quite closed uh, who's actually supplying us with the technology. Finley? Yeah, I, we've got lots and lots of people who are working and trying to get one step ahead of the hackers. It's a constant cat and mouse, make no mistake. The only point I just want to pivot on slightly is say, around the world we see natural disasters actually affect lots of people who use ways all around the world. And last year we had hurricanes, Imra and Harvey on the east coast of America. And I just wanted to showcase a couple of things. That first of all, people needed shelters and we pushed a notification to our audience, and we had 154 people in the Texas area volunteer their hours to be a shelter for people who couldn't get away. We closed 2,500 roads and helped people in real time find the route out because if they were getting away from the floods, a lot of the roads were blocked. And we sent notifications to about 2.3 million people at the time to help them plan for this. And then after the hurricanes had passed, they sort of worked out that there was about 900,000 cars that were now completely written off and unusable. And all of a sudden, you've got these people and they need transport. So we made the decision as a company, we had no plans to, but we basically fast-tracked the launch of our carpool service in those areas of Louisiana and Texas, offering free rides to people to try and help them get about. We worked with the departments of transportation in those areas to tell people about it and our media partners. And I just use as an example of, yes, we've got hackers, but it's a good example whereby people who are local people actually want to help each other out and technology facilitated things like that. So, again, I'm just kind of... um, These are genuine examples of people crowdsourcing information for things like safety and security. Well, I'm I'm going to wrap up this uh, this section of our debate and we're going to throw it open to the floor now. We have got several people roaming around with microphones there we are um so if anyone has any questions um there's plenty yet to yes gentlemen at the back there in the sunglasses hi yeah my name's joshua um yeah you've been talking about hackers a lot and um 
I think we're forgetting also some of the hacking community actually started to try and wrestle data away from governments. So now you get courses like ethical hacking. I think, you know, more people need to have an understanding of computers at a deeper level, coding, things like that, because then we will have control over our data. That is only dangerous if one person controls it all and makes all the decisions. But if we have ownership of data ourselves and we can you know, arrive at answers, we can actually, you know, help each other as a community, like you said. Um, Data being a really bad thing, I don't think so. I think it's a really good thing and it's not new. I mean, there's a a pie chart that Florence Nightingale uh, designed in 1855 and she used it actually to save lives. She showed that more people were dying of hospital infections than they were actually dying because of the result of injuries from the Crimean War. And that was a classic example of using data to actually change the hospital standards. So it all depends on what we do with it, really, I think. So. OK, try and take another question. We'll take a couple of batch of questions. Yes, there's a great question. Thanks, Joshua. Uh, yes, we have just wait for the microphone to come in for you. If I could ask you to stand. Hello. Um, I'm coming in at this as a much older person, and I feel the smart cities passed me by. Um, I don't feel part of it. I live in a London borough. Our amenities are closing in our local community. You are there for... I think we've cracked living longer, but not living longer with quality of life necessarily. With our local amenities closing, you're not getting siblings into the same schools necessarily, so parents are forced to travel... Older people, our libraries are going. There's no bank that older people can physically go to. How can we get smart by joining it all up more than the smart city seems to be something entirely separate to me? Thank you very much indeed. Another excellent question. Jamie, I'm going to put Joshua's question to you. Uh, This is the ownership of data. Yes. And uh, Josh was also right about this penetration testing uh, notion. Um, I just want to say that the, the security uh, of Internet of Things devices is so bad, so dreadful, that it's really quite a problem. And we need ethical hackers to hack into those devices to tell the rest of us what's wrong with them. And so we do need a slightly different view on what hacking's about. These guys are really, really important. We also need our politicians to understand all of this a little better and probably not just to lovingly embrace all things data-led and technology-led because it looks cool and the CEOs wear T-shirts and they ride on into work on a skateboard because we're still often talking about big businesses and governments do have to take sometimes quite a tough line with them. But I do agree with you. I'm not suggesting that we can't learn stuff from data for a second. I run a centre that works on using data to try to solve problems. My view is that the NHS can and must be the world leader in machine learning solutions to health problems. And this is going to be like the invention of penicillin. This is incredible. The question is who owns it? How carefully is it looked after? Are we sure that we understand its possible misuses? Is it being manipulated by a small number of people in a way that we don't understand? And that's, they're the questions that we need to be asking. And I agree, we shouldn't chuck all of this good stuff out because we're worried about it. We just need to be sure we get it right. 
Thank you very much indeed. Stephen, I'm going to ask you if you could address the uh, issue that was brought up by our lady in the second row there. Tech has passed her by. And it seems like we're coming back to Angie's sort of partitioning point, really, from earlier here. Um, how, what's, your, what's your feeling on that? Well, our, our, our general position is this. If you're using services in London, you can interact with public services any way that you want to. I think the old model to say that everyone has to go online and, and that's the only way for you to be able to get services, that's not our position. Our position actually is to enable all the people that are working for you on the front line in, in those places to have the ability to take your concerns and make that into data that goes into the system and it makes change. Because I think your population often ignored because somebody writes it down on paper. It's not valued and it's not valued and recorded in the same way that a young person like me puts it into an easy-to-use internet system where the data is re- readily available by decision makers and getting get that together. The other point I'll, I'll be making is uh, is that. We've just gotten the grants of about, it's, it's small, it's about £8 million for all of London to be able to join up the NHS GPs, the social care providers, and what we call social prescribers, those who organize uh, centers for that, that, that enable people to gather together to, for hobbies. To gather, and these are re- real places that get real money from the NHS for, uh, for people that have, have needs that are, go beyond just the, the health needs, but needs for your soul, needs needs for your sense of community, and there's about thirty five thousand of them in in London, and those people are not on the radar of of data, and and they are not joined up into the system like they should like they should be, and we're very keen, especially as a challenge for the for the aging population in London to be able to accomplish that. Thank you very much. At this stage, I just want to bring in Anne-Marie Emmerfeden, who we have here in the audience. Uh, Anne-Marie um, is the founder of STEMETS. This is an organization that encourages young women to go into STEM careers, that's science, tech, uh, engineering, and maths careers. Um, if we could have a, a microphone here just at the front row to Anne-Marie, that would be wonderful. Um, really just to see what input you had at this point, if you had any questions or if you wanted to add something. Um, a quick comment. I feel a bit for Jamie because it's almost like you've been uh, painted as the bad guy. The bad guy? On the panel. I, I want to say I, I empathise. <laughs> I thought I was a good guy. Um, I empathise with you, like but that. I think uh, the, the, I guess the other take on, on kind of your inputs has been we need to make sure that we're all thinking about this and everyone is thinking about this and everyone is contributing to this, which I think you almost, you need the kind of the scaremongering and the pessimistic side because uh, not everyone is, that works in technology and has access to these things is like Finley. I wish <laughs> everybody was like you, then we, we wouldn't have any of these problems. Um, but we need to make sure it's, it's something that we all decide together. Mm-hmm. So my frustration with this is always that it's never something we decide together as a national debate. What should our cities look like? How should our towns look like in respect to our cities what should the villages look like um and even with this debate i think there's elements of it that have been quite london centric when there's a whole country out there and and a a whole world even Mm. beyond it so my question really was what can we learn or, or um what kind of positives should we be taking into towns in terms of kind of smart towns i've not heard that that phrase coined before uh but also if we're not looking at london if we if we kind of uh, maybe there's a ban on the word London for the next five minutes. What do other cities look like when they're smart? What kind of problems are we solving that aren't London-centric? We're a transportation company, so we don't, we, we don't do all the things about Encompass Smart Cities. But I will say that we get emails from people 
We got an email from the mayor of some state in Idaho, in middle America, and he emailed us to say, <coughs> heard about this carpool project that you're launching in the US. Can you please bring it to my town? He said, I've got two main problems. One, I've got huge drug use that they're trying to sort out. Number two, there's one factory that most people work at, and they work in three shifts, and there's no public transport. Can you help bring this so people can get to work? And that is the actual type of people that we think we can help with this. And we think that, yeah, I've lived here time. London transport, I think, is great. But as soon as you start going way out of here, it's, it's not that great. And, 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 and you have to try and think, how can we get new services, new solutions? And what's so good about, I think, young people who come up with new ideas is that you can quickly prototype things and get things out. And we're a big believer of that. And you'll probably be well aware of Google's and trying to invest in STEM subjects themselves because, of course, in the UK, we've criminally not invested a lot in this in the schooling system. So we'd like to see more entrepreneurs tackle these things. We feel we can pr play a role, but it's, there's, there's so much that can be done. Thanks very much. Can I um, one yes. quick thing, which is that the, apparently, I, I agree with you entirely, but the, apparently the, the smartest city in the UK is Bristol. It's not London. It won an award for, for this. But I worry sometimes that we want to turn all of our towns into smart cities and we want to turn them all into tech hubs. Leeds is a tech hub. Cardiff is a tech hub. Preston wants to be a tech hub. And like, the danger then is that we're just creating this two-tiered society of cool techies with cool jobs and everybody else. San Francisco. And San Francisco, which <laughs> is the worst place on the planet. And I thought it was going to be amazing. And I don't want us to create loads of San, little San Franciscos around the place. So while it is obviously good to have this new tech introduced to smaller towns, I, just, I, I don't think it's going to be wise if everywhere tries to become a tech hub. Do you think the tech hub is the thing that's encouraged the sort of the, oh God, I'm going to use a London road, the Shoreditch effect, yeah. you know, the, the, the artisanal thing that we've seen, this sort of mania, sort of fetishization of, of artisanal input. I, and, I think has the, the phrase smart city has come to be the kind of modern cover for basically a tech business park. You, give, you hand over your city to a bunch of tech companies and let them use it as your playground and you make it sound wonderful by calling it a smart city. Um, but I'm really... Sorry, can I hijack that, that, Dude, that yeah. moment? Because you're absolutely right. I'm really glad you brought up other countries, particularly globally, because I've written about smart cities that are mostly actually in developing countries. And, and I really worry there. I mean, I, I can't really say anything about smart towns. I don't know much about them in the UK. Um, but in terms of, uh, so for example, Narendra Modi is, is really keen that the PM of India wants to build smart cities everywhere. And it's a vehicle for regeneration and actually what it's ended up doing is displacing lots of people um, and in China and across Africa they're rolling out these smart cities they're, they're kind of sanitized gleaming kind of skyscraper filled places where as it turns out people really don't want to, li to, to live and in China I know that they're looking at for example why is it that people would rather live in really quite deprived communities in rural areas? They just, they just will not move. And I think there's, there's a great lesson there, is that sometimes we, just, we think we know how people want to live, but actually often we don't. OK, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Yes, gentlemen here at the front, have we got a microphone there? Thank you. 
Thank you. Yes. Um, so we've talked a lot about digital solutions to smart cities, but the actual work of, of making cities, of uh, building infrastructure, of, of, of trains is not very digital. It's not very smart right now. If you look at this construction site over here, it's still basically pouring concrete, uh, lots of steel. And I'm, I'm wondering how you kind of bridge the gap, because to really shape the built environment, it's about digitizing the construction industry, uh, which currently ranks very, very low in all sectors in terms of how digital they are. Okay, before we answer that, could we just have one last question? Anyone else? There's a question there towards the back on the, on the right-hand side. Um, we've heard a lot about sharing and collaboration, and Finley mentioned carpooling as a, as a way of perhaps becoming a smarter city. I recently moved to London and see around lots and lots of assets that we could perhaps share in a better way. But is it a mindset of consumption and independent ownership that perhaps acts as a bigger barrier to becoming a smarter city than an ability to foster new technologies? Two very good questions there. The first question um, was about the construction and uh, smart construction. Um, do you want so, to answer? Have, yeah, a, have a brief I'll, crack at that. And I'll have a brief crack at that. So there's a program that I'm uh, that I'm I'm personally leading right now on smart infrastructure. So what kind of data is being gathered from the construction sector and the buildings and streets and spaces they're designing? And we have a group of people there called the Mayor's Design Advocates, which are the kind of hottest architects and designers that we can fi find in London. There's 50 of them, and there's a feature city group that I'm working with to be able to take that data. What are the best streets and spaces and buildings were being made? How do we get that information into the you know, lift up the 80% worst buildings that are out there while protecting the intellectual property and the competitive advantage of the best architects and designers? And I'm looking to, uh, very much to them to be able to, have, uh, to, um, to perform that trick in the, in the future. The sharing economy is really interesting because I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I, I do know I, and I, I understand that we all have too much stuff, or at least older people do have too much stuff in the sharing and the sharing economy. I wonder who's pushing it and what the agenda is, because if you're just sharing, who's owning? That's what I'd like to, to know. So if, you, if you're sharing all these spaces, who is owning? And are you, again, just perpetuating that, that concentration of power and wealth and control into fewer and fewer hands? So, yeah, I, I love the idea of people sharing stuff. But that we, we, again, we need to think um, about, about the corollary of that. It's not sharing, is it? It's renting. I mean, that's what it actually is. Yeah. It's renting assets to other people and with profits going to whoever owns the platform that facilitates the rent. Mm. So, uh, uh, and again, yeah, definitely agree that there is the potential there for more efficient use of different assets that are out there. But I'd like to see some more civic technologists get out there and build some other platforms that work on a slightly different business model. Well, that is going to wrap up the debate part of this evening. Um, I just want to flag up to you that there are senior Shell leaders around um, if uh, they will be around later on if you want to find them and chat to them um, you can meet them informally and put any further questions you have to them so it just remains for me to thank all our speakers, to thank Shell and Intelligence Squared and to thank you all for joining us this evening. Thank you all very much indeed thank you Thanks for listening you can continue the conversation online using hashtag make the future